Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there, Mark Kenny with another Democracy Sausage Extra, and it's my very great pleasure this week to introduce Andrew Lee. Andrew Lee is a former economics professor here at ANU, and he's currently the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities. Uh, he's also the member for Fenner uh, in, the, uh, in the Australian Parliament, and of course, uh, therefore, a perfect person to talk to about a whole range of things around this um, this coronavirus crisis in both its economic dimensions, but also in, in a number of its social dimensions, because as an MP, of course, he's got uh, very direct responsibilities in representing a large and very diverse community. So, Andrew Lee, welcome to this Democracy Sausage Extra. Thanks, Mark. It's the closest thing we're getting to a sausage sizzle these days. So great to be with you. That's a very good point, actually. We're in a slightly larger studio than we used to broadcast from for precisely that reason that we have to in, in, engage in what I like to and prefer to call spatial distancing so that we don't uh, don't drop away with uh, mm. you know what social in- interactivity we need to have uh, but we'll come to that in a moment let's just start though with um, your assessment of how bad this um, and I'm talking about largely in the economic dimension to begin with what are the characteristics of this that are different from the GFC and uh, and 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 I guess what about its scale as well in terms of uh, you know how how bad this is and how bad it could become it's uh, significant and uh, unfolding rapidly mark uh, today's numbers there's 191,000 people infected with coronavirus around the world 7800 deaths both those numbers are up about 10% from yesterday uh, but it's clear that uh, we will have a vaccine within a year or two. Uh, there's a trial of remdesivir uh, go- embarking already, a lot of resources being thrown into finding a solution. Uh, so I think the challenge for government is to ensure that this is disruptive rather than destructive uh, because unlike a, a d- depression or a recession uh, in which the ongoing hit to economic activity could last a decade, uh, here we ought to be able to bounce back. Uh, there's really no reason why someone ought to lose their job, why a productive business ought to go to the wall uh, because 
of uh, a viral-driven disruption uh, that we know we're going to be able to deal with in a public health sense uh, within a year or two. So you don't buy the argument that some people are putting, some people in the business and economic sphere, that uh, you know there are structural problems with with excessive indebtedness and you know a speculative bubble and these sorts of things in the in the equities markets uh, that is that that is being corrected here and that is. You know, so there's a sort of a, a core economic weakness showing up here as well. There's certainly structural issues in the Australian economy. I've uh, spoken and written about the challenges of productivity going backwards, about the lack of innovation, about the fact that new business formation rates have uh, fallen. Uh, and all of that uh, means that we're in a worse position to deal with the coronavirus uh, challenge economically than we would otherwise have been. Uh, but from a policy standpoint, uh, this ought to be a V-shaped drop. Uh, we ought to be able to bounce bounce back quickly. This is why fiscal policy was developed. This is why governments uh, uh, have have been responding around the world uh, with packages much more sizable than what we've seen from Australia so far. Uh, we're speaking on Friday morning, so it's before the government's second stimulus package of last week, that was less than 1% of GDP compared to, say, uh, packages in, in New Zealand of 4% and some European countries over 5%. Is there a sense in which some of those governments, though, are are doing more like there's almost an inverse relationship between their their lack of appreciation of how serious this was in the earlier stages and now a, a you know very strong recognition that they are in deep deep trouble both uh, in a in a health sense from the you know mismanagement or the undermanagement of the epidemic itself um, but also now because of the implications of of this in terms of you know the economy killing activity of this business of this you know virus are they just sort of going a lot further because they didn't go as fast as us and some other countries? I wouldn't say that we're leading the world in terms of our policy response. Uh, you look at Sweden, where the uh, budgetary package has been significant, where the government has said it'll pay all sick leave uh, in April and May. Uh, the best responses to a crisis like this, Mark, are where you've got a measure which is both good for public health and also good for the economy, uh, ensuring that we get sick leave right, that no worker has to choose between uh, being able to put food on the table and infecting their co-workers uh, is absolutely vital. Uh, we also need to pause the uh, requirement for job seekers to come in to, for face-to-face -face interviews. Uh, that makes economic sense at a time when jobs are drying up uh, and it makes public health sense as well. I think also supporting charities is uh, is in that category. Uh, so many of these charities risk going to the wall if they don't get appropriate support, uh, and they're the organisations that we're already relying on to continue to support bushfire victims and will rely on much more in the future as the public health crisis unfolds. Uh, so there's a lot we can learn from other countries, including Germany, where this uh, bazooka policy has now seen the uh, German government say that it will extend unlimited credit to all firms. Can we go back to – we'll come to that in a sec, but can we go back to that point you made about um, job seekers, uh, this, there, there seemed to be some sort of hints in what the PM was saying yesterday. And I, I should repeat your caveat that you mentioned just, just a moment ago that we're recording this before the government makes a, a second big stimulus announcement this on this, this very day, but later today. 
Um, that will probably be known by the time people are listening to this podcast. But um, the Prime Minister, in his comments on Thursday after the Reserve Bank had, had you know, pulled its uh, extraordinary lever of quantitative easing and taking the, the cash rate down to 0.25%, um, the, the Prime Minister made these comments uh, that seemed to hint that the government was looking at relaxing those, uh, those work or job seeker requirements for people on New Start. One would hope that uh, if mm. other people are going to get a higher level of assistance, that New Start people would as well. But I, I, we, we don't know that yet. But they're the kinds of radical things now that governments are doing. Absolutely. Uh, it's also really important that as we respond, we're not just responding to the loudest voices, but also to the most, most vulnerable. I worry particularly about people who are homeless, uh, about Indigenous Australians who are living in overcrowded homes where the virus could spread very quickly, uh, about people in prison, uh, about people people with disabilities or pre-existing health conditions. Uh, so as the government's crafting the response, they need to make sure that it is driven first and foremost by the needs of the most vulnerable rather than by the, the cries of lobbyists. When we saw that first package, the $17.6 billion that the government uh, uh, you know, uh, pledged to, uh, which was only a week ago, we should say, mm. it was uh, eight days ago. Fast-moving world. Yeah, it was. And then the next day we saw you know, quite you know, dramatic changes. You know, th- th- this whole thing, as you say, is very fast-moving. Um, what, what sorts of policy responses do you think the government should be looking at? Uh, it needs to be measures that are scalable uh, and which uh, have a temporary impact on the budget rather than an ongoing one. Uh, so, for example, the proposal from... Can I, can I just interrupt you? Does it, is that absolutely necessary? I mean, I understand the idea of fiscal hangover and uh, the government's made a lot of saying that Labor spent too much in the GFC and that you know this, this condemned the budget to years of... Of, of being in deficit, that, that's, you know, that's the sort of line that the coalition's been running for a long time. But is it absolutely critical that all of the measures be temporary, that they all be unwound? Or take, for example, New Start. I mean, it's chronically low. It's been a, a, a blight on this nation, I think, for a long time. Isn't this a moment when we ought to at least recognise that? I believe New Start's too low and I think it ought to be increased. Uh, but I do think that the measures that Labor took during the global financial crisis uh, were time limited. Uh, there was calls from Conservatives at the time for permanent tax cuts. Instead, we, uh, we dealt with the global financial crisis uh, through tax bonuses and infrastructure payments. Uh, and that meant that the hit to the budget was smaller than it would otherwise have been. Most of Australia's debt, as you know, Mark, has been accumulated since 2013, since the coalition came to office. Uh, it's Most of our debt is not debt that was accumulated during the global financial crisis. More broadly, I think people just have a, a dour view of uh, those who come to the coronavirus crisis uh, saying, this is a great chance to implement the idea that I've been pushing for years. Uh, let's be uh, creative and uh, purposeful as we look to craft a solution here. Uh, there's a range of solutions which go directly to dealing with the impa- impact of the crisis. Uh, after that, let's go back to the, the debates about right levels of uh, of, of taxes and uh, and, and the, the like. So let's go to some of the uh, dimensions or the measures that you think that would be uh, needed. Um, the, some ideas that are around at the moment um, are, uh, you know, 
straight out cash payments to individuals. Uh, we know that there were cash payments to businesses uh, announced mm. in that first package, uh, but clearly this is both a supply and a demand shock now in the in, in the way it's manifesting in the economy. Uh, so do we need to be putting money directly into the pockets of consumers to have them spend? Uh, and what other measures are we going to take? Because, I mean, a lot of businesses, we can see this, we're seeing these stories all the time, a lot of businesses are just going to have their, their you know, their, their, their customer base drop away to nothing, you know, mm. you know overnight effectively, as even said, if they've got cash. Absolutely. As, as I said before, Mark, the best measures are ones which uh, have a public health payoff as well as an economic payoff. So, for example, uh, the construction of additional temporary hospital facilities in case we need them uh, would support jobs but also provide a public health payoff. Uh, ensuring we get the sick leave challenge right is absolutely vital. We just don't need people who are unwell coming into work because they don't have sick leave. And if and you look you do, at and the, that, you're talking about casual people, casual employees in particular. There, absolutely. If you look in the accommodation, cafes, and restaurants sector, 63% of that sector don't have sick leave, uh, and so that's a that's a first order of challenge to be dealt, dealt with right there. Uh, and supporting those those frontline responders is uh, is critical. Uh, beyond that, I, I think uh, there's a range of groups which were left out of that first stimulus package, sole traders, uh, charities, uh, and it's important to make sure that we're supporting right, uh, people right across the board uh, with a focus on where the coronavirus has hit uh, and on the most vulnerable Australians uh, who we know from looking at, looking around the globe, uh, coronavirus has had the hardest impact on some of the most marginalised communities. What about this idea of income contingent loans uh, to businesses? How does that work? Well, this is an idea that Bruce Chapman's proposed. Uh, he was uh, the inventor of HEX in Australia and his notion is that now that we have business activity statements, it's possible to look at a firm's revenue and to provide a loan which doesn't need to be repaid until revenue returns to a reasonable threshold. Uh, one of the concerns that businesses have now that, that I is reflected back to me speaking to financial institutions and firms uh, is that they don't want to be making repayments already. Uh, so using a revenue contingent model would allow those repayments to be, to be put off further in the future. And, and indeed, Bruce argues that such a model could be applied at any scale, including even to, to an airline bailout. So how much could it cost though? I mean, what are the, what are the downsides of doing this? Uh, presumably someone is carrying that debt for that period of time before it starts being repaid. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, the debt levels in Austra Australia on a house household basis and a government basis are histor historically pretty high. Uh, it's a saving grace that interest rates are low and so the, the cost of uh, carrying that debt is lower than it would otherwise be. Uh, but we do need to make sure that uh, debt is repaid as we return, return to uh, a more normal state of affairs. Yet right now, the challenge is ensuring people don't lose their jobs uh, and uh, putting, putting stimulus into the economy to keep jobs and business afloat is absolutely the right thing for a government to do right now. Uh, there's no reason people should lose jobs and businesses because of a temporary hit from a, from a virus. Has the government moved moved fast enough in that regard? No, I don't think so. Um, and the first two cases in Australia were coming in uh, late January, so we're uh, we're well into the uh, crisis right now. If you look around the world at what other countries have done, thinking particularly of Sweden, New Zealand, Germany, uh, England, uh, those countries have moved more quickly. Uh, their governments have moved more quickly, and their central banks have moved more quickly than ours. Uh, the extension of credit to uh, firms has been uh, more. Uh, 
extensive in those uh, those places uh, and the ability of those countries to address the challenge of sick leave uh, has been greater than in Australia. Uh, we're, we've also had challenges here in, in getting uh, testing right and making sure that uh, there's the, the pop-up health clinics and in extending telehealth uh, because the more you can extend telehealth, the more you ensure that your healthcare workers uh, don't contract coronavirus. That's been a big problem in other countries where healthcare workers either have been taken offline or in some cases have contracted coronavirus unknowingly and continued then to spread it to people that they're working with. Uh, so uh, so telehealth's a critical part of the response. This question of um, you know the speed of the response, I, uh, and you mentioned the, the Reserve Bank there, you didn't think it had moved quickly enough. Are you suggesting, for example, that it might have uh, lowered rates the month before? It did it lowered uh, by 25 basis points at its most recent monthly meeting and then again yesterday in that out-of-cycle uh, reduction. But the month before that, it had not, even though it had talked about, I mean, coronavirus was very much an issue mm. then. Uh, it, 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 I was at the Reserve Bank Governor's uh, press club lunch where he specifically addressed this question. And at that stage, they were saying that they expected it to be a 0.25% hit to GDP growth. And they were putting in another 0.2% for the bushfires and, and saying at that stage, they felt like they needed to hold fire. The Reserve Bank Governor had also said in that same speech that they acknowledged there is a you know significant lag between when you pull that lever and when it actually has any effect in the economy. Was it too slow? Politicians don't normally comment on Reserve Bank decisions, but I'm the Deputy Chair of the House Economics Committee that has a formal role of scrutinising the Reserve Bank. And in that capacity, uh, I've been arguing that uh, the Reserve Bank uh, was mistaken in pursuing a policy of, of leaning against the wind, of using monetary policy uh, in part to contain the growth of debt rather than focusing on unemployment and inflation. Uh, and given that, I was arguing for rates to be down to 0.25% last year. Uh, and for the for the Reserve Bank to be moving more quickly to looking at uh, quantitative easing. Uh, so I was disappointed that they they, they took the time they had. Uh, I think they're now catching up with their counterpart central banks, but you look at what the Bank of England, the ECB and the Fed have done uh, in terms of the extension of credit to, to small and medium enterprises, uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the rollout of uh, broad quantitative easing. Uh, and it's, it's hard to say that the Reserve Bank of Australia has been at the at the cutting edge of uh, of response, uh, then again. You know they're in a they're in a bind with rates as low as they are. Uh, we're really talking about effects on the margin compared to what the government can do. Uh, as you get towards that lower bound, monetary policy runs out of puff, and really the 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 challenge is now a fiscal policy challenge first and foremost. Let's take a very short break, and when we come back, I want to go to pick up that again and get, perhaps get you to explain in you know, to the, for the ordinary person what quantitative easing actually is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, I'm talking to Andrew Lee, uh, Labor frontbencher and, of course, member for Fenner in the ACT, as he's just been saying, also a member of the House Economics Committee. Uh, we were talking about the, the Reserve Bank's performance and particularly the, the policy levers that it has now pulled. It's, uh, it's run out of room, really, with uh, lowering the, the interest rate, the cash rate. It's now down at what it, it calls sort of functional zero of 25 basis mm. points. And we're into this thing called quantitative easing. Now, my, my suspicion is that many people don't really understand what this is. It's sometimes shorthanded as printing money. Uh, but can you explain what the nature of the, the decision was, the specific nature of the decision was that was announced yesterday? Quantitative easing is the purchase by central banks of bonds. Uh, those bonds can either be government bonds or else it can be uh, corporate bonds. Uh, in uh, other countries, there's been a, a more rapid move towards uh, broad quanti- quantitative easing. Uh, in Australia, there's been more reluctance to uh, to purchase uh, a wide spectrum of assets. Uh, it's not the first uh, first preference of central bankers. Uh, they would rather use the uh, the interest rate. Uh, but as you say, uh, Mark, when you hit the uh, zero lower bound, uh, we're in unconventional times. And and the idea of it is to put more money into the economy to increase the overall liquidity of the economy. Uh, that's right. To uh, to continue to stimulate demand uh, as uh, as monetary policy would do uh, if you were able to uh, to keep on using it. Uh, in some cases, central banks have taken interest rates in negative territory, uh, but it it gets messy and there's a limit to to how far you can go. Uh, there's a limit to how much you can charge people for holding their money rather than paying them something for holding their money. Yeah, not surprising. Um, and and it's quite significant, this, because it's never happened before in Australia that the central bank has engaged in quantitative easing, whereas mm. it has happened in the US, and it's been a bit more common, I think, in places like Japan. But it really does underscore how significant this crisis is in economic terms, this moment, and what the Reserve Bank, for its side of uh, the, 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 the policy equation, is being prepared, is having having to do. Absolutely. Uh, we're in uh, uncharted waters and, and it does again uh, highlight the importance of the federal government now starting to do more. Uh, what the federal government can do now in terms of supporting businesses, we think particularly of the huge challenge the airline industry is facing with the effective cessation of, uh, of international flights, uh, but also smaller businesses uh, like cafes, restaurants. You know, I was chatting to a uh, local ha- hairdresser uh, in my uh, uh, suburb of Gungahlin uh, about the impact that they're having. People just aren't coming in because they don't want that close contact with mm. others. Uh, they're putting off their haircuts. Yeah, I can imagine that because uh, I saw a hairdresser on uh, ABC TV last night talking about this and she was making the point that for many people getting a haircut or getting their hair done is a, you know, it's a discretionary spend for one mm. thing. Um, so there's the, you know, the economic nervousness about it, but probably more primarily there is this concern about the close personal contact that is inevitable in that process. And they've just, they're just seeing uh, business drop right off. And there are so many different stories that we're seeing like this. And it really does, um, sort of boggle the mind thinking about 
how steep this drop off is in, drop off in economic economic activity is even just from the fact that people aren't going out for health reasons you know they're they're leaving aside the economic uh, uh, considerations they might have the insecurity they might have which is why we've seen people buying toilet paper and mm. various other things but there's this whole kind of um, just uh, crushing um, reduction in activity from people deciding that the best thing they can do is stay home, and presum- presumably people aren't buying petrol and all kinds of things. Absolutely, uh, you know, I've had a, an email from a masseuse in my electorate. Uh, she said she's both facing an increased risk in case one of her clients is ill, uh, but also then seeing a drop off in demand. Uh, Pilates instructors, yoga instructors. Uh, you mentioned before uh, the panic buying in supermarkets, Mark. I, mm. I think this is, from an economic perspective, fascinating because I think a lot of what's going on is people buying more when they see half-empty shelves. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, it's something that the supermarkets, in my view, can, can manage a little better. Uh, they need to make sure that to the greatest extent their shelves are full uh, because that's going to uh, avert panic buying. And you hear occasionally of things like supermarkets coming in with a pallet of toilet paper and ju- not putting it on the shelves, just dropping it on the floor and having uh, shoppers fight for it. That's the worst thing you can do in the current environment. Uh, you need to encourage people that there isn't scarcity that Australia produces toilet paper domestically and can produce plenty of toilet paper for all of the needs of uh, uh, all, all of all, all of our households. Uh, so keeping shelves full is really an important aspect of reducing panic buying. Yeah, there's been and the Prime Minister's had some strong things to say about that, and I think many of us would welcome uh, some sort of leadership on that question. And I think the Prime Minister did sharpen up his messaging and his his leadership in in these sorts of questions earlier in the week. But it's wrong to simply reduce this to, you know, being the behaviour of idiots or, or, you know, people who are un-Australian. There is a certain rationality in buying goods that you, that, that, that self-evidently seem to you to be under high demand and therefore possibly not available. And of course, the other question is, it's not just about necessarily the supply of those goods, but it's about the possibility of those shops not being open anymore. Yes, and uh, that's it's pretty clear that's not going to happen. There's not places around the world that are closing their supermarkets. Uh, but as you say, people take their signal of scarcity from, from others mm. because they look on the shelves and they look to see what other people have taken. Uh, and so you get these quirky things. I was talking to one of my staff members who said they were walking through a supermarket where all the detergents were gone. Mm. Uh, my wife was in... Uh, Woolworths the other day, and all of the bread was gone. Uh, but then, it, 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 so, so it's these particular sections where suddenly uh, a few products disappear, then people start to panic, and then it all goes. It's it's a bit like a bank run, uh, but uh, yeah. unlike a bank run, there's not a, a clear solution that involves closing off the uh, the demand. I think what you need to do instead is just to make sure you've got those shelves as well stocked as possible to reassure consumers that the products they might want tomorrow uh, will be there tomorrow when they need them. So it's a bit like equity markets in a way, the confidence there, uh, how it can, you can get those runs on when people, when, you know, when panic sets in, panic sets in, it becomes its own, um, you know, behaves according to its own laws for a time. Yes, that's right. And uh, there's there's measures we use in equity markets, such as uh, temporary halts to trading, which help to uh, to try and allay some of that concern. You know, I think these natural sort of measures are kicking in and mostly working effectively. Uh, but there's certainly a lot we can learn uh, over time from this particular crisis. Let's go to another very strong aspect of this uh, crisis, and that is this debate, very strong and passionate debate in Australia, as it has been elsewhere, but uh, ongoing in Australia about 
keeping the schools open. Mm. Uh, if you look on social media, for example, there are many people who are um, very, you know, have very strong views about this, mainly on the side of closing the schools. Yet the Australian government uh, and all the state and territory governments at this stage support the advice that they are, or, or, or are behaving consistent with the advice that they are receiving from their medical experts, chief health officers and the like to keep the schools open. Um, it's, it's, that's a very difficult situation. I mean, it highlights to me a couple of things. One is, you know, obviously the stakes for people when they have their children in schools are very high. This is a very personal thing mm. and people are going to always err on the side of maximum safety when it comes to their kids. Um, but it's also the case that there's, there's a few things happening here with expertise itself. We know for a long time now this government has questioned the expertise, say, in the climate change space. And so there's been a lot of kind of, you know, passing of, of uh, information and, uh, and quibbling with, uh, with expert advice. And I don't think that's been a particularly useful thing. Mm. Uh, but there's also now, in this case, a very strong discourse of credible experts with different views from those of the chief medical officer, Norman Swan being one of them, but probably the most prominent. But there are many, many, uh, you know, epidemiologists, physicians, uh, infectious disease experts and the like who have made their views known. Uh, and because of the internet age, because of the, uh, you know, ubiquitousness of information now, uh, people are taking the bit of expertise they like. Reasonable people can disagree on this one. I think it's a, an area in which plenty of experts have lined up on both sides. Uh, the argument for school closures is that although the uh, impact of COVID-19 on younger people seems to be much smaller, uh, they can act as quite effective carriers through the community. Uh, the argument against it is that uh, you... Uh, have a uh, huge impact on the economy once you close schools. That effectively sends parents back home and, and some parents can telework, but uh, try teleworking when you're looking after uh, three, three hmm. kids at home, uh, you're not going to get very much done. So that uh, exacerbates the economic hit. I think there are ways of addressing the children of health worker point, which gets raised from time to time. Norway, for example, has required schools to accommodate children of health workers and other essential personnel. Uh, but uh, which, which has has the advantage. It seems to me it's, it, it sounds like it's a bit of both, but it does have the advantage of you know dramatically reducing the density of children in the school, which is consistent mm. with the idea of spatial distancing to the extent that you can bring it about. And a lot of people are contemptuous of the idea that you can even do that in a school. But let's assume that if you only had half or a quarter of the students there, it is at least more possible. Uh, and it allows those, therefore, those people who simply cannot have, you know, do not have any other way of having their children looked after during that time because of their own responsibilities, it ensures they are able to continue working. Yes, it's, it, certainly, it's, it certainly has that uh, benefit. Uh, it's challenging for schools because many teachers are parents. And so as soon as you close, as soon as you take uh, teachers' kids out of school, many of those teachers are forced to stay home to look after their own kids. Uh, but Norway has managed their way through this. Look, it's possible we'll get to a stage of school closures at some point. Uh, I'd like it if the federal government was doing a little bit more to uh, provide guidance around this and also to step up on the telework, uh, uh, distance education aspects. Um, so if students are staying home for extended periods, uh, the last thing we need is uh, Australia's young people losing 
losing a year of human capital as mm. a result of this. Uh, so we need to think about how we would scale up distance education uh, for that to work across the entire population. Maybe there are plans that won't be put into action, but I'd love it if the federal government was uh, doing more to, uh, to make this uh, a reality. But it is a difficult situation, is it? You've got uh, countries abroad doing it. Britain's uh, the, the most, I guess, the closest uh, com- comparable country mm. to us that's done it just, uh, you know, as of tonight, I think, uh, their, their schools close. Um, so uh, it's, it becomes harder to defend. And as I say, this is very personal for a lot of people. They just want to err on the side of maximum safety. That argument that... You know that, that it has economic implications. I think just doesn't touch the sides when people are considering the health of their family. They're, they're not that interested in a debate about what might happen to the economy as a result of it. They're interested in what might happen to their children. Uh, that's right, which is why about a fifth of Australian children are being kept home as we speak. Uh, there's certainly a, a concern among uh, among many people, and uh, I can understand uh, many people's decision to keep their kids back home. Uh, but what we need is some sort of... Uh, I think Bill Shorten's one of those, isn't he? He's, I think he's announced that uh, he was keeping... He and Chloe were keeping their kids home. Yes, I think, that, uh, I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, you can do a little bit with... Uh, some of the programs like Mathletics and Duolingo, which my kids uh, are avid users of. Mathletics, uh, I don't know that. Oh, it's a wonderful little uh, gamified maths program. Uh, very, very good, very good stuff. And of course, Khan Academy for uh, kids at older ages. All that works as a stopgap. Uh, but for long term, I think we need uh, better, uh, th- better thought through plans for dealing with the education of Australia's children uh, in the event that schools close. That's a core federal role that, that doesn't seem to be being uh, played at the moment. Now, you're a local member of parliament, so you have a responsibility f- to represent, uh, you know, a, a large number of constituents. You must, your office must be dealing with a fair amount of anxiety at the moment and, mm. and the people who work in your office, uh, you know, are front line in that process as well. What's the mood of the community? Uh, we have a fairly dispersed office, uh, not open plan. I, when we relocated, I, I'm, I'm strongly against open plan, so I asked for individuals <laughs> to have offices, and I'm uh, very pleased in the current context that I did so. Um, so my staff have continued to come into work, although I've said that anyone who wants to work from home is welcome to. Uh, there's uh, certainly a degree of, of anxiety. We're getting people coming in, particularly um, older residents, to ask advice. Uh, we're just about to send out a, a letter to uh, over 75s just to set out the information that's available about uh, COVID-19, how to protect yourself. Uh, we're also looking at ways in which we can encourage uh, the strength of civic community. Uh, my wife and I in our local streets uh, just sent around a letter saying that uh, if people need help, they should uh, drop us an email, and if they can give help, they could drop us an email. Uh, we sent it around yesterday, and immediately we got a, a handful of emails, all from people wanting to offer help rather than needing help. Oh, that's um, fantastic. But, uh, but that encourage- doesn't surprise me about Canberra, frankly. Absolutely, no, and uh, and and it'll be. I'm hearing about initiatives like this popping up right across the city, uh, ensuring though that we have a stronger sense of civic community. If the period of self isolation goes on for much longer, will be a challenge. Uh, making sure that, for example, uh, those who are living on their own have someone to pick up the phone to when they need to, need to chat. Uh, that there's uh, we think about ways of of ensuring that we can maintain spatial exercise with spatial distancing so sure park runs may be off 
but going for a, a run in the bush with a mate is still uh, still on uh, and uh, maintaining that sense that we're in this together is going to be really vital. Uh, I love the stories of uh, residents in Rome apartments who've been singing opera to one another as a way of keeping their uh, their spirits up uh, and uh, there's a there's a cry of stay strong Wuhan which has apparently been shouted out of uh, uh, apartment buildings from one to the, one to the other uh, during the period of uh, quarantine in Wuhan. Uh, all of these things are, are, you know, they sound a bit cutesy, but they're going to be vital if we're to come out of this uh, a more connected community rather than a more fragmented one. Yeah. Do you think Labor should have been brought into this national cabinet that now contains the state premiers uh, and you know, territory leaders? Yes. I mean, what the Prime Minister is calling a national cabinet is is really, as best I can tell, a, a COAG phone hookup. Uh, there's two reasons that I think it would have been valuable to uh, to uh, build a, a cabinet of national unity, which was bipartisan. Uh, the first is that uh, we're in a country where all the wisdom doesn't reside on, on one side of politics. Uh, and so uh, there's always good ideas that uh, the other side can bring in to uh, crafting a response response package, whether that's on the public health side or the economic side. Um, the other is that I think it buys you greater community support for anything you're looking to do. Uh, we're in a country where the last election was a 48-52 election. And so uh, if you want broad support from the public, uh, then it helps to have the minority party in the, go- in the government as well or in- as part of the decision-making process. Now, finally, you're a former economics professor here at this very university. We're sitting in Canberra as we do this interview. Canberra, of course, is a, you know, sometimes joked about as being a, a company town, the company being the government, but it's also a university town. We have mm. the University of Canberra and, of course, ANU, uh, the nation's national university. Uh, are you concerned about the impact of this on the sector in which you used to work, the, the tertiary education sector? We, we know there's a lot of debate about, you know, the reliance on overseas students and particularly students from China. But the university sector faces a pretty grim uh, grim year as well, it seems. Absolutely. Uh, I think it has been prescient that Brian Schmidt has moved the uh, university much more towards uh, online education over recent years. I think that's put the university in a better place to deal with uh, the in- increasing shift now towards uh, doing online tutorials. Well, just uh, as long as they don't do away with our offices as well. That's one term you don't hear getting mentioned much anymore. It's fallen right out of favour is the idea of hot desking. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, no, no one wants to get once uh, someone else's desk these days, do they? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, the, the platforms like Zoom aren't perfect, but we're getting much better at, uh, at using them and ensuring that the educational quality uh, isn't diminished as we do so. Uh, so for ANU, I think uh, it'll, it's, it's going to be as exposed as, as any other organisation in Australia um, and making sure that uh, we have an ANU which is able to come out of this stronger is, uh, is not only only a priority for Canberra, but also for the nation. But does the government need to be doing more? I mean, it, it seemed to uh, the, the noises it was making a few weeks ago um, were that uh, along the lines that you know there are a number of sectors that were going to be bailed out, and we've seen some of that already. But uh, you know the, the the signal was from the government that the universities were sufficiently liquid and they could you know find their own way through this. 
Coming back to my point before about the ideal measures being those that have a public health payoff and an economic payoff, I think now's the time to be uh, investing more in uh, uh, public health responses. Obviously, there's the chase for a, for a vaccine, which is the, the top priority, but there's also a whole lot of important work around uh, what social distancing measures work uh, and how to manage overcrowded uh, ICUs. Uh, right now, we ought to be ramping up the resources that are devoted to that, uh, and that would also have the benefit of, of coming into a uh, sector which is, which is really hurting as a result of the hit to its international revenue. As an economist and someone who's uh, been a, a student of, of human behaviour and the way markets behave, and governments, states, I suppose, um, do you think that we'll be significantly transformed as a result of this crisis, perhaps in ways more profound than was the case after the GFC? I was talking to somebody uh, yesterday, yesterday uh, who was picking up a, an exchange we had been having earlier this year about Australia's stagnant economy, uh, and her response to me is, oh, I'd, I'd really take a stagnant economy right now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so it is a, a very different world to be in, but I hope we don't drop the challenge of ensuring that uh, we do look to become more dynamic and more productive. Uh, there's no reason we should lower our economic ambitions for this nation uh, as a result of coronavirus coming along. There's no reason we ought to be less ambitious on meeting our climate change targets. Climate change isn't going away simply because coronavirus came along. Uh, this ought to focus us a little more on long-termism. Uh, an issue that I've been troubled by over recent years is the sense that uh, populist politics undermines uh, long long our focus on long-term challenges, whether that's nuclear war, climate change. And this and, is mainly pandemics. because populists themselves just give us glib sort of solutions to things in the short term. Mostly they're illusory promises, you know, solutions, but it just completely removes our focus if once we are electing populists, removes our focus from those long-term challenges. Absolutely. Uh, they turn up the temperature and they get you get you angry and you get focused on your hip pocket and what is happening today uh, rather than on what, what the impact might be on your kids and grandkids down the track, which could be uh, massively larger. Uh, so we do need a greater focus on long-termism, which part of which will be better pandemic preparedness, but also we need to be thinking about other long-term challenges that face us. Uh, that's one of the things that I'm keen to uh, discuss more in politics over the coming years. Speaking of pandemic preparedness, I mean, we've been talking about superbugs and and uh, the, the prospect of uh, this kind of viral outbreak. Uh, it's always, It's long been accepted that it was a possibility, but has the world, and let's think about Australia, I guess, in particular, but what was the level of preparedness really? Was it really what it should have been? I don't think we were as well set up as we, we could have been in terms of uh, things like testing and ventilators. Uh, I'm not sure that the the work on uh, what you call spatial distancing uh, had been done as effectively as it might have been. Uh, and also... My what sense... about capacity in the hospitals themselves? I mean, it seems like you, you only had to go into an ED, an mm. emergency department, to know that they were operating with no surge capacity. They were dealing with a sort of more or less permanent surge. Uh, and most hospitals operate pretty close to capacity most of the time. So, you know, have, have there been some pretty kind of um, heroic assumptions made there about what we might be able to do in these moments of extremists? 
Hospital capacity is important. Uh, one of the things that the OECD has been telling us for years, though, is that Australia is investing uh, too much in hospitals and not enough in primary health care. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that uh, uh, mass- a massive expansion of our hospitals would have been the right solution here. Uh, better testing and te- uh, telehealth is, is, in my view, the, uh, the, the frontline priority, uh, as well as being able to have that sort of surge capacity, being able to uh, perhaps even bring in the military to build uh, additional hospital facilities. Uh, but we also need more research around virology. Uh, you know, the fact that we weren't able to come up with a vaccine for SARS a number of years ago uh, has put us in a worse position in facing coronavirus than if we'd managed to come up with a SARS vaccine. I might just go to one final issue before I let you go. Uh, I have been intending to wrap this up, but it's just such a fascinating topic. And, and that uh, that final issue is uh, vulnerable communities. Mm. Uh, I believe you have some concerns about uh, how this crisis might uh, play out for remote Indigenous communities, for example. Yes. I mean, one of the concerns is over uh, what might happen uh, as the $750 payments are handed out. These are the uh, ones that were announced in the first tranche of yes, uh, the yes. government stimulus. Which which is an appropriate re- response. Uh, but for many remote communities, there's only a single store in town. And so there is a, a risk then that if people have an extra $750, they'll go to a larger population centre to spend it. Uh, that's, that's what any of us would do, frankly. Uh, but that increases the risk of contracting coronavirus. Uh, remote communities, uh, by their nature, are less likely to contract coronavirus in the first place. But if it's brought back into the community, massive housing overcrowding problems mean that it'll spread like wildfire. Uh, distance to hospitals uh, mean that the mortality rates could be higher. Uh, so I think that it, it's an urgent and pressing public health challenge to ensure that uh, Indigenous communities are uh, for front of mind when we deal with coronavirus. Andrew Lee, thanks so much for joining us on this Democracy Sausage Extra. It's been a great pleasure. And of course, the subject matter is pretty tough going at the moment. Uh, None of us are enjoying this. It's not something Mm. we would wish on on the world, but uh, it is the reality that uh, is 2020. And let's hope that uh, it's all done and dusted in 2020 as well. Uh, Let's hope so, Mark. Let's hope we can return with something that's uh, been disruptive, but not destructive. Thanks very much, Andrew Lee. Thank you. And I should just say, finally, that the normal Democracy Sausage will be back next week, as as usual, but we'll probably have it out a bit earlier. Uh, the the, the uh, Democracy Sausage elves, as they like to call themselves, uh, will be working uh, feverishly to do that because this is such a fast-moving story. The policy issues here are, are so important, and there's a great deal of interest, of course, in these matters. So uh, we'll have that out, hopefully, uh, Monday afternoon rather than Tuesday morning, and uh, we'll continue to uh, get as many of these podcasts out as as we can uh, to, as, as uh, we have um, experts to talk to and bring them to you. So bye for now. 